Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome airline friends, family, foes, and fanatics. I'm Chris Chimes, and this is Airlines Confidential. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us for another Ride Around Airline Land. We're going to be talking in a bit with Sean Donahue, the CEO of DFW International Airport. But first, let's get to some news. Chris, take it away. Ben, we're going to start with something that caught my eye this weekend. We've been talking weekly about the pilot shortage, but now the CEO of the largest aircraft lessor, Aircap, is saying we might be a year or two away from an aircraft shortage if the industry's recovery trajectory continues at the same pace we're seeing right now and supply chain issues aren't resolved. Are you buying that? That's such an interesting story, Chris. And at first I thought it was sort of overreacting. Then last week I was in Boston and I had a quick lunch at an Italian restaurant in the Boston airport. People who know that airport probably can guess the restaurant. And I ordered a dish and they said they couldn't make it because they had no cream in the store. It was like a cream sauce paste dish. <laughs> and, and I said, well, do you have olive oil? <laughs> like you're in an Italian restaurant. And the guy said, it's a supply chain issue. Some days we don't get bread. Some days we don't get olive oil. Today we didn't get cream. So when I, when I figured that the supply chain could go to that level of detail, then I started rethinking Aircap's view and thought, well, if an Italian restaurant can't get cream, what does that mean for the thousands and thousands of suppliers and parts for airplanes? I bet they're right. And I bet there are challenges. And if it's not just availability challenges, it could be labor shortages in all the suppliers and sub-suppliers. It could be much higher transportation costs to get them where they need to be. So I bet what the CEO of Aircap was saying is it's getting harder and harder to do this business. And in that sense, I buy it completely. Yeah, it's like we're in a foot race. Uh, what's going to lock up the industry first, aircraft or pilots, I guess? But it was an interesting uh, analysis. And I think he's you know sounding an alarm at a time when people should be starting to pay attention because the recovery is picking up at a very fast clip. And, you know, there's a lot of parts of the world that are ready to kind of zoom, if you will, and, and really add capacity in ways that maybe the industry is not ready for. That's right. And I thought it was also interesting that that warning came from a lessor and not from Airbus or Boeing. Yeah. And a lessor that's uh, lost a lot of aircraft in Russia. So I think they wrote off into the billions uh, a couple weeks ago with regard to aircraft they assume they're never going to get back. And then, Ben, I've got to ask you, did you catch that congressional hearing on UFOs? And what did you think? You know, when I first started hearing it, I was in my car 
and I turned on the news and I heard the hearing going on. And at first I thought, is this like a promo for an old 1950s show or is it a commercial (laughs) or what is this? Because I didn't realize the hearings were going on. And then it didn't take long for me to realize it was an actual live congressional hearing and I was mesmerized. So I got home and I literally sat in the car for another 30 minutes and just listened. And it was, it was crazy. They were talking about, you know, things that had been identified and things that hadn't yet been identified and what pilots had reported and, and what they believe could happen and what were drones and what they couldn't understand and how triangles look a different way in a night vision goggles than they do if you don't have the goggles. It was like straight out of science fiction, and I couldn't believe it was happening in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was watching some of the replay, and I mean, the bottom line was like, yep, these are unidentified, and they're flying, and they're objects. I mean, it's like, I, I, so, so, I, so I mean, I'm not sure any wisdom was imparted, but I guess they, they had the hearings with more to come. They promised more hearings to come. So, Yeah, you know, the, the thing about the UFOs that I think is it's all in the U, right? We accept they're flying objects, but they're unidentified to who? Like, I can look at a bird in the sky And to me, that's a UFO in specifics. Like, I know it's a bird, but I have no idea what kind of bird it is. Right? Right, right. So that's a UFO. (laughs) Well, I mean, whatever it is, people are laughing. Whoever's in those spacecraft, they're laughing at us. And they're, they're not landing for a reason, I think, right now. I know. I think that's right. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a company that does not make UFOs, but is a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependability. With 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Aerodata. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. Ben, another piece of litigation between American Airlines and its predecessor, U.S. Airways, and technology provider Sabre was resolved last week. American won on its claim that Sabre willfully maintained monopoly power, but ruled against AA on its contractual restraints claim. And the jury awarded AA $1 for its trouble when I think they wanted $300 million. Do you want to try to make heads or tails of this decision? You know, that's crazy. When a jury awards $1, what they're saying is, okay, you have the better point, but we don't really think you were damaged. And lawsuits are about providing compensation for people who are damaged in some way, right? And so all I can say is, since I don't know the details of what American was claiming and what Sabre's defense was, 
what an independent jury concluded were, okay, Saber probably was acting wrong, but we don't see any harm that was really imparted on American Airlines here. So we'll say they acted wrong, but not give American any money. And not, not even enough to, you know, buy a drink on American. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I think it's, it sort of shows that these lawsuits around monopoly power are really, really hard to prove. There's so much competition in the business to say that one player is exerting power in a certain place and that there aren't options is just a really, really high hurdle to prove. And it's amazing to me probably how much was spent on legal support at both American and Sabre for this ruling. And in the end, all it did was end up just costing both companies money and maybe Sabre has to act a little differently going forward, and that might be the win here. Yeah, American won a lawsuit probably, I don't know, 2016, 2015, but that settlement was vacated by a judge later. So I feel like the court system is telling American and Sabre, because I think Sabre's been involved in litigation against American at various times too, but I think they're telling all the parties, like, we're really just not into you. You know, we don't we don't really care that much about your disputes. And, you know, this is like the umpteenth lawsuit back and forth. And like you said, it doesn't move the ball very much. It, there's some moral victories, but is this going to change anything? And is this really the most constructive way to have a business relationship? Anyway, maybe th- maybe that judge needs to go run the Johnny Depp. Amber Heard. (laughs) There you go. For the life of me, I don't even know why that keeps showing up in my feed. I never click on the stories, but they seem to be like, you know, major news breaks every time I flick on my Twitter. Um, And Ben, before we get to our guest, I know you can't say anything about the drama involving Spirit, Frontier, and JetBlue since you sit on JetBlue's board. But lots of people are watching this, especially as JetBlue goes hostile and takes the offer directly to Spirit shareholders. I just want to say one thing is for certain, Frontier is expanding its footprint in the world of ULCCs and is determined to pull off an ultra low cost consolidation, if you will. So I'll just leave it there. And everyone's going to be watching as this unravels over the next couple of weeks about what the shareholders are going to do once given the opportunity to weigh in. And with that, we'll be right back with Sean Donahue. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're pleased this week to have as our guest a very important player in the U.S. aviation system and the global aviation system. Sean Donahue is the CEO of DFW Airport. Sean, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Please give our listeners a Brief introduction about your career and what you do right now at DFW. Sure. Thanks, Chris and Ben, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to catch up with with you guys and your your audience. I've been in the aviation industry for nearly 40 years. I spent 25-plus years at United Airlines and then went to Australia and spent several years with Virgin Australia as the chief operating officer. And then about nine years ago, was recruited to come to DFW Airport as the CEO. Well, that's fantastic, Sean, and we're so happy you're here. 
Let's talk about DFW. It's such a storied airport in the world. Give us a high-level overview of the facility as far as operations, economic impact, and role in both the U.S. and international aviation. It probably makes sense to just spend a minute talking about the history of DFW because it's important to recognize some, some visionary leaders in both Dallas and Fort Worth 55 years ago decided to come together to build an airport, provided us 17,000 acres in the, back then was the middle of farmland. And it's enabled us to grow to a facility with seven runways, five of them parallel, still have plenty of capacity uh, ahead of us. And now we're, we're the second busiest airport in the world. And from a, I'm glad you brought up the economic aspect of it, Ben. Airports, and I didn't really recognize this until I came to DFW, they're just massive economic engines for their communities. We did a study about five or six years ago, and at that point, the annual economic activity at DFW was about $40 billion dollars. We're actually updating that study now. It's going to grow. And DFW Airport's the second largest economic engine in the entire state of Texas. And that that's true for a lot of the big hub airports throughout the U.S. So the region, the, the surrounding communities really rely on the airport. 65,000 people work at the airport, 12, $12 billion worth of payroll for everybody that works at the airport or is associated with the airport. So U.S. airports are really, really important economic engines for the communities and, and partners they serve. Well, Sean, we want to talk about the future and the excitement, but we can't have a conversation without looking back over the past two years. Can you give us a sense of the impact of the pandemic and what were the low points? Are you back to full speed with regard to operations and passenger counts, or where are you today? Well, we all remember certain things vividly during the last two years. There's a couple that really stand out in my mind. Uh, first of all, the last trip I took prior to you know the aviation system effectively being shut down in you know late March, early April 20, I was up in DC. Uh, meeting with the administration, meeting with the FAA, the DOT. And at that point, it was clear that the U.S. airlines were going to get federal assistance, which we completely supported. And we were making the argument that the airports um, should be considered as, as the administration was looking at supporting aviation. And thankfully, for the first time ever, in a crisis, the U.S. airports were supported. So that, I remember flying home that night, and that was the day that uh, we shut down traffic coming in from Europe. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you laugh at this now, but it was when they shut the NBA down, same night. And it was just one of those defining moments that you said, this is going to be some pretty serious stuff. And then within two weeks, we lost 95% of our traffic. Uh, in that first six months, we saw our revenues drop by $500 million. But we, 
we chose a bit of a different path, I would say. Uh, we made some very early decisions. The, the first one, and I believe the most important one I made was within a week or two, I told all of our employees, no one would be furloughed. No one would take a cut in pay and benefits. And that was very reassuring to our employees and their families. We also very early on chose to support our business partners, especially our concessionaires. As both of you know, concessionaires tend to be small businesses. Uh, in many cases, they're uh, minority and women-owned businesses, part of the fabric of the community. And we chose to waive all their rental payments because we wanted them to survive. And we walked away from over $50 million in rental payments that we, we knew we'd never recover. We had no intention to recover them. We also decided to proceed with some important infrastructure projects. It was a perfect time to reconstruct one of our major arrival runways uh, with the you know, diminished uh, demand on the airport. We decided to move forward with adding gates in our international terminal and one of our busiest domestic terminals. And during the pandemic, those created 4,000 new construction jobs. So, you know, I readily admit the support from the federal government was very helpful, but we chose to keep investing in our employees, our business partners, and the infrastructure of the airport and importantly, now that we are at about 98% of 2019 levels, we feel like we're ready to handle the traffic. 95% of our concessionaires are back and open. So I, I believe as I look back, those were, those were important investments to make during a time that certainly we didn't have a crystal ball. Sean, that's an amazing long-term view that you guys took with the rate abatements and the infrastructure during times when there wasn't a lot of volume. And I bet both of those things are going to serve you really well going forward. Now, the industry itself, the airline industry, I mean, is been reeling because of staff shortages, cancellation of flights, some airlines trimming summer schedules because of that. How have you dealt with the labor shortage that seems to be affecting every business in the U.S.? Well, it has impacted us, Ben, just like everybody else, as you mentioned. Our vacancy factor right now is about 20%. When we decided not to furlough our employees, we also knew we probably had too many employees, so we offered an early retirement program, which was strictly voluntary. And we actually had more than 10% of our workforce take it when we anticipated maybe about 5% was we're going to afford them of the uh, that opportunity. So, you know, we're climbing out of that kind of vacancy hole. We're feeling all the same pressures that everybody else is. But I, you know, as I look to the summer and we're going to be damn close to 2019 levels, you know, I talk with American, you know, we share with them all the time how we're doing. They're, they're sharing with, with us how their hiring's going. I actually believe we're going to be in pretty good shape this summer. Our business partners, 
um, are ready. So is it tough? Yeah, it's, it's tough. But I give credit to everyone. I give credit to our federal partners, uh, TSA and Customs and Border Patrol. We've been talking to them for six months about, you know, how do we get ready for this summer? And it's not going to be perfection. We all know there's always issues in aviation, but a tremendous amount of planning has gone into being ready to welcome all of our customers back this summer. Sean, you made reference to your concessionaires. Obviously, there's lots of revenue streams coming different directions into the airport, whether it be the concessions, the landing fees, parking. I just I just got my Memorial Day uh, nine, nine a day bargain to park at uh, DFW for, uh, for the weekend. How are those revenue streams being impacted? And and also, if you could also talk about rideshare and how that's changing the dynamics of, of the revenue mix. Well, it's been a surprise to us, Chris, a pleasant surprise. So far this year, and our fiscal year is October through September, so we're six months into our fiscal year, and our traffic is 95% plus to uh, 2019, but our non-aeronautical revenues, to your point, parking, concessions, commercial development, is 106% of 2019 for the same comparable period. And what has surprised us is parking. The the amount of demand for people to park has just uh, shocked us. And if you look back to 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, obviously the the TNCs, the Ubers, the, the Lyfts and so forth, they were, you know, steadily and in some cases, dramatically increasing their share in terms of ground transportation throughout the country. And we saw the same thing at DFW. The pandemic hit the TNCs hard, but we're starting to have a a view that there might be a bit of a permanent shift. The TNCs have recovered, but they're nowhere near the share they had prior to the pandemic. And to your example, Chris, we've been working hard at DFW over the last two or three years with online prepaid parking. We have now well over a million customers who have used online prepaid parking, which provides us benefits above and beyond just prepaid parking. And so I believe the the mix there's been a bit of a, a, a shift there, and we'll see over the next couple of years what's hap- what happens. Again, the TNCs have recovered from 20 and 21, but they are not back to the share level, not even close to what it was prior to the pandemic. And most of those customers have come into our parking products. We'll have more with Sean in just a moment, but first a reminder, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. 
Well, Sean, the world knows DFW as the hub of American Airlines, the largest airline in the world, and they have to be your largest tenant by far. How do you balance the interests of that with the interest of the airport in general and the greater region to have truly competitive air service? Great question, Ben. And sometimes I get accused of uh, wearing my old airline hat too much. Um, but I, from the day I, I arrived at DFW, I view airlines as our customers. And American is by far our biggest customer, over 80% of the share of the airport. And it's interesting, in 2016, DFW was 23% of American's system. Today, we're 28% of their system. And I believe that's a good thing for, for DFW. And at the same time, we obviously welcome other airlines. What we've been particularly focused on, Ben, is getting more international service into DFW. And, and American has significantly grown their international footprint over the last five years. But in the last six months, we've had Turkish come in. We've had, for the first time, we've had Finnair come in for the first time, Iberia for the first time, Air France has come back, Qantas, who's had a nonstop out of here to Sydney for many years, just announced at the end of this year, they're also going to add nonstop to Melbourne. American's going to fly nonstop out of here to Auckland this winter. So we've been really pleased with the international growth. I tell the business community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, as successful as this community is and you know the amount of corporate relocations and people moving here, I don't believe Dallas-Fort Worth is on the global uh, map as well as it should be. So I've been really pleased at the international growth. We're adding gates at the airport. Uh, we're going to keep trying to... Uh, uh, bring more international carriers in. And, and everybody knows that in, in Atlanta or DFW or some of the other big hubs, you know, all airlines are welcome. And, uh, but all airlines are smart. They're, they're not going to uh, uh, poke the bear, if you know what I mean. And um, the other thing that sometimes gets lost is Southwest is at Love Field, which is 10 miles away, which creates a competitive dynamic for the marketplace, which is healthy for all, too. Sean, that roster of new international service is pretty impressive, and obviously that brings in a premium level of of traffic and, and fares and and the like. But what about on the other end? How do you see the ultra-low-cost carrier segment impacting the industry or impacting DFW? Good, good question, Chris. And in the summer, historically, prior to the pandemic. In the summer, Spirit typically was the second largest or second busiest carrier at DFW because they would really peak up during the summer. And um, the, the other ultra low cost carrier that uh, has grown just in the last year here is Frontier. We all know, you know the, the, the merger talks going on uh, between Frontier and Spirit and then JetBlue's interests. So who knows how that's going to play out. But 
there's room for the ultra low cost carriers to be smart and to uh, you know be a little bit more of a a rifle shot approach at DFW. They seem to be doing that, and you know we want to accommodate that. If 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 other carriers want to grow, it's our responsibility to to foster that, and we will do that. At the same time, we'd like to see American continue to grow as well, because this region will absolutely continue to grow. And by the end of the decade, maybe the early 30s, um, you know, it's math. The Dallas-Fort Worth region will be bigger than Chicago. And so we've got to, you know, one of our key stewardship responsibilities to make sure we're always out in front of that growth and enable that growth. Sean, we'd like to ask our guests from the airport side their views on the role of PFCs. And do you think the PFCs should be raised? What's your take on this sometimes controversial source of funding? Ben, I, you know, I've always been of the opinion that PFCs are a really important component of being able to continue to invest in airports. Now, having said that, with the support that airports have received in the last couple of years, and then with the the new infrastructure bill and the support the airports are getting, those are obviously important sources of, of revenue. I'm a market person. I do believe that there should be consideration of an increase in PFCs, but I'm also a realist in that, you know, airports have got to be smart about what exactly are we asking for, what will we do with these funds, and, you know, I, I, I would not support, you know, if PFCs get uncapped, which I don't really practically see happening, you know, airports got to be smart because we're, especially in DFW's case, we're this massive connecting hub and and we don't want to be more expensive in connecting customers and, than other hubs. And uh, so do I support uh, looking at a PFC increase? Yes, I do. But the criticality of it, given the support we've received from other funding, is probably not what it was. And and again, we just, from a DFW perspective, we're always focused on being cost competitive. So if we do have some flexibility uh, with PFCs, we'll be smart about it. Sean, let's pick your brain a bit on the return of business travel. I think if you ask 10 industry executives about their prospects for business travel, you'd get 12 or 13 points of view. So I'd like yours on what are you starting to see or what do you think is going to happen to the kind of the road warrior and the return of business travel like it used to be? Well, I'm not sure my crystal ball is better than anyone else, but what I hear as I talk to businesses in the community, what I hear from the airlines is the unmanaged corporate travel. So kind of the small, medium business travel uh, has recovered much faster than the, you know, the big corporate managed travel. Um, and I do believe kind of the Fortune 100 companies 
they're starting to travel again. I'm hearing that because we have a lot of them based here in Dallas. And even if they're not based here, they've got large, large offices. The question mark I have long term is if you are, you know, one of these major Fortune 100 companies, prior to the pandemic, how much of your travel was internal company travel? And that differs probably company to company, but let's just say, for example, let's say it was 20%. In the future, will that be 20%? My guess is it will be less than 20% because the CFOs and those companies will say, well, come on, you know, why do we have to send a couple people between Dallas and Boston for an internal meeting when we can do it on Teams or some other platform? So I'm not, I'm not advocating that or suggesting that it will be wiped out, but I do believe that piece might have some permanent impact. So that, that's my view. It's, it's coming back faster with the SMEs than the big corporates. Uh, but I, I am just hearing in the last month, uh, the big corporates are starting to travel again, which is, which is good news. The, the, the last piece of that I would say is, just like we all hear there's pent up leisure demand, is there actually pent up business travel? What will happen this fall? That, that to me will be the critical period for the industry. What happens in the fall uh, in terms of business travel? And that will be uh, pretty interesting, I think. You know, it, uh, it's great to hear an airport manager talk about SMEs versus corporate travel. It's clear you spent a lot of time in the airline side of the business too, Sean. So as we wrap up, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on the show, you talked so excitedly about the new international service coming online. What are the other things coming online at DFW? And what do you really see over the next three to five years for this amazing facility? Well, a couple of items. We have a, a capital program, Ben, of uh, five to six billion dollars over the next seven, eight years. For those folks on your podcast that are familiar with DFW, we renovated all of our terminals except Terminal C as in Charlie, and that terminal just kills me. The condition of that terminal is awful. And uh, to Americans' credit, we reached agreement with American and we're going to renovate Terminal C. That's going to be a $2 billion project. We're going to add a pier to Terminal C to add more gates. We're going to add a pier in Terminal A to add more gates. We have to keep, as I said earlier, investing in the airports. You know, we are coming up on 50 years old, so a lot of the other infrastructure in the airport we're going to have to invest in. So a big capital program, number one. Number two, we take this responsibility as an asset to the region really importantly, both economically and, again, we're in Texas where it's oil and gas, but we take our environmental responsibilities very seriously as well. And and we've made a commitment by the end of this decade to be carbon net zero. And, and today, for example, you can imagine the amount of power we use at DFW Airport. We purchase, purchase 100% of our power is wind generated. 
And a lot of people would not guess this, but Texas is the number one state in the country in terms of wind generation. The other aspect of it that the extremes on both sides of the environmental debate don't really talk about enough, in my opinion, is environmental investments can be good investments. Since we went to uh, wind power for all our purchases, we've saved $20 million a year in electricity costs because they get credits that we were able to negotiate a piece of. So it's good business. You can make the right decisions and they can be good business outcomes. And, and those are the type of decisions we like to make. And those are the type of investments we like to make. And again, um, the cities of Dallas and Fort Worth own this airport. Um, we want to be good partners. We want to be good stewards. And we want to run an airport at the end of the day that our owners, our airline partners, our employees, all our community partners are proud of. And uh, that's what we're going to keep focusing on. Well, that sounds fantastic. And having traveled just last week in Terminal C, I was really <laughs> excited about all the concession <laughs> options, but had to say to myself, wow, this doesn't look that different from when I worked at American in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, so right. it's great to hear that that one's under a redo. Yep. We're, we're actually, in about two weeks, we're opening up the first renovated part of C5 five brand new gates. And uh, obviously we have to take this phase by phase, but we're going to get after it. Well, Sean, DFW is lucky to have you there. And we are very fortunate and appreciative of you coming on our show. I'm sure all our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Thank you very much for your time and your really great insights on running one of the world's truly great airports. Ben and Chris, my pleasure. Hope you guys have a good summer. And uh, as we all know, if you're traveling, I hope you already bought your tickets. <laughs> That's right. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Sean Donahue for taking our questions. Now we'll take a few of yours. Remember, you can send us questions via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, this first question is from Ryan from Orange County, California. Ben and Chris, I was wondering if you know of any sites that list routes that may have existed prior to COVID that are no longer flown. I'm curious as I plan for a flight next March. Currently, no Star Alliance carriers fly directly from Charles de Gaulle to LAX, but I'm hoping some carriers might have in the past and may possibly return in the future. Thanks very much. Ryan, that's a great idea. It would be a very geeky site, of course, for people to want to see routes that used to be flown that aren't anymore. But I don't know of a site that does that. But specifically related to the route you're talking about, I mean, Sky Team flies that, right? Because Air France flies Charles de Gaulle to LAX. 
but Star Alliance doesn't. So I think this is a case of it's maybe not quite hub to hub, but when you're going from a hub airlines airport, if that hub isn't a Star Alliance member, then you're probably not likely to get a nonstop service from them. I guess it's possible that at some point Lufthansa or United might choose to do what British Airways decided to do before the pandemic and create Level, which was a nonstop point-to-point carrier from other points in Europe, and they might fly Paris, LA as Star Alliance. But I wouldn't put too much hope that Star Alliance proper is going to fly nonstop from Charles de Gaulle to LA. Now you put fly direct. They may fly a plane, a through plane from Charles de Gaulle to Chicago to LA. That's possible. Yeah, I think his best hope is United if he's counting on using either Star Alliance points or earning Star Alliance points for this. But I, I this is like one of those examples too, Ben, where I'm not sure that the past really gives you much insight into the future with regard to what routes might be coming back, because I think it's going to depend on the market too and the timing. But if somebody knows a site that can list all the uh, kind of orphaned international routes that haven't come back after COVID, please send it along and we'll share it. And remember, there's a reason that airlines stop flying routes. (laughs) Right, right, right. And Chris, then Alan from Wichita sent us this. Ben and Chris, love the show, longtime listener, first-time writer. I have a question about state and local subsidies for airline service. One scenario involves a smaller community with service from a single carrier that may be terminated. A couple of recent examples are Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Pocatello, Idaho. Both cities appear to have two problems if they do not subsidize air service the economic cost and loss of federal funds for airport infrastructure. The second scenario is a medium-sized market where there are multiple carriers and nonstop destinations, but the community is seeking lower fares and or improved access to distant destinations. 20 years ago, my community in Wichita, Kansas, was plagued by high airfares. Local and state subsidies from 2002 to 2016, coupled with a campaign for local businesses to buy ticket on new LCCs, allowed the city to attract two LCCs to this market in 2002. This lowered airfares to the level of larger cities in our region. Those subsidies were over $6 million annually at times. Today, six years after the subsidies ended, Wichita has maintained that same fair level and competitiveness. What are you seeing in the local state subsidy area now? And what trends do you expect to see in the future, given the pilot shortages and other constraints on capacity for marginal markets? Long question, but a very good one, Chris. Yeah, it was. And um, thanks, Alan, for writing in. And I had forgotten about, but then I, when I saw this uh Letter I remember about the Wichita experiment uh, back 20 years ago when I want to say Airtran was one of those carriers, but uh, it, it proved successful and it, and it proved innovative when other communities hadn't thought of this and had to be more aggressive. So a couple points on this question. One, I do think that the pilot shortage is going to result in some self-fulfilling prophecies with regard to the diminished amount of air service into smaller communities, notwithstanding 
any subsidies. There's just not going to be enough money to motivate airlines to serve small communities that can't support service. I, I do think that more and more communities are going to have to come to the table with their own solutions because the essential air service program, again, is always ripe for whittling it down to fewer and fewer communities getting subsidies. I mean, I looked at the current list and, you know, I noted, for example, Merced and Visalia, California are on that list to get subsidies. They're an hour away from Fresno. There's, I can't think of an economic reason why you would subsidize service into those communities, notwithstanding the fact they want them. Staunton, Virginia is like 45, 50 minutes from Charlottesville. There's service in Charlottesville. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is on the list. They're, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes from Harrisburg. So, you know, it's hard to justify in these times of budget deficits continuing to subsidize service for communities who aren't trying to solve the problem themselves. So I think there are going to be a couple things colliding here. One, the pilot shortage. Two, budget shortfalls. And three, you know, more and more people are bypassing these small airports and getting to a larger airport for better options and sometimes better pricing. So I don't think service to small communities is going to grow in any way without some funding at the local level. I think you're right about that, Chris. You know, some of the comments you make about the California and Virginia, Pennsylvania markets, in those cases, they're all close to cities that do have service. Lancaster, you mentioned how close it is to Harrisburg. It's also pretty close to Philly, and there's plenty yeah. of low fares in Philly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm more um, empathetic to cities that are five, six hours away from any airport that has any kind of competitive service as receiving subsidies, but that is a subset of the EAS cities on the list today. So I agree with you. There are some cities that are going to require subsidy to maintain airline service. There's also going to be a continuing question as to whether or not subsidizing that service should be done by the general American taxpayer or by the taxpayers in that city that get the service. Right. I mean, yep. the government subsidizes transportation in all kinds of ways. Right. They build airports. They run air traffic control for the airlines. They even gave them subsidies during covid. Right. We all know how the federal government supports the airline industry, but they support the rail industry because there's lots of track in the U.S. and there are limits. And so where else you can build track and things. They support the trucking industry by building and maintaining interstate highways and other things. What I don't think the government has to do, and this is a personal view here, is I don't think the government has to subsidize travel no matter where you live in any mode you want, right? And so, you know, if, you, if you've got good roads, maybe that's good enough. If you've got a big airport, maybe you should have service. If you got rail service, you can count on that. So I'm, I'm not sure where I fall on this subsidy thing, although, in fact, I am, I am much more empathetic towards cities that are really a long way, a very long drive. What you also see happening, Chris, increasingly is airlines starting to use bus service for 
shorter distance routes, bus service that are sold as flights that have a flight number that pull up to a gate in the airport and things like that. But instead of getting on a little plane, you get on a bus, which compared to the little plane is probably more comfortable and has better Wi-Fi. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and I could see some, not arbitrary number, but I could see some, you know, three hours or more kinds of distances from from air service being a rule that kind of guides who deserves EAS subsidies, for example. But yeah, I'm not in the position of making a decision, neither are you, but I do think that there's going to continue to be a narrowing of subsidized air service. And Ben, one last comment, and it's from our pen pal, Mike from Southlake. And I got to say, Mike, you rarely agree with us, but you're always constructive and polite about it. So that's, we always enjoy your uh, emails. He was commenting on the discussion last week about potentially raising the pilot retirement age to 67. Guys, just a reminder that when the pilot retirement age was increased to 65 in 2007, it wasn't to address a pilot shortage. On the contrary, there were still thousands of pilots on furlough from the legacy carriers post 9-11 when it happened. I know because I was still on furlough from U.S. Airways at the time. I remember thinking it was unconscionable that ALPA would support an increase in the retirement age while thousands of us were still furloughed, extending an already lengthy furlough. The line we were fed at the time was that so many pilots near retirement had their pensions taken over by the PBGC that they needed those extra five years to recoup some lost retirement dollars. This time is a little different, but will still cause some stagnation. Maybe not at the legacies with massive retirements, but at other airlines with younger pilot groups and longer upgrade times. Upgrade to captain at my company is 11 years right now at even our most junior domicile. Changing the retirement age to 67 or 68 slows that down to 13 or 14 years. That could be a recruiting problem for my company as they compete with companies that have shorter upgrades to recruit and retain pilots. Just something to think about. There are always going to be unattended consequences. Raising the retirement age again would impact the Generation X pilots harder because we've been impacted by the increase twice over the span of our careers. Ben? I think this is an interesting and fascinating perspective, Mike. Thank you for this. You know, in 2007, when the retirement age was raised to 65, that was in my early days at Spirit. And we actually did see it as a pilot shortage issue in that we projected over the next five years, it was going to be very difficult to find pilots. So we applauded that decision at the time, not thinking about the point you just made. And I think you made a really, really great point here. In terms of increasing it now, we do have a shortage right now. And it would help solve that problem over the next couple of years. So I think. Congress or the FAA would sort of have to weigh delaying the upgrade from right to left seat for a couple of years in favor of keeping the system flowing for the next couple of years. That's a tough one to me. I've said before on this show that I think the real way to fix this problem are the academies and other ways to train very young people who want to become pilots into commercial air pilots. 
And that is all started in almost every major airline and lots of LCCs and even regionals are all doing that now. The problem is it takes years and years to get the number of hours you need to make that happen. So it's another four to six years before that set of schools is producing a big enough pipeline of pilots. So for the next four or five years, do we do we accept much higher fares because airlines can't have enough flights so some pilots can become captains quicker? That's a very cynical way to respond to what you said. But in a way, that's kind of the choice, I think. So I agree with what you said about the age 65, that that probably did hurt people like you. In this case, I think the greater good is going to be to raise it to 67 for the couple of years that might change for some people. Without that, I think we're going to be looking at airlines having to do what they're doing this summer is trimming capacity during a very peak high demand time just because they don't have enough pilots. Right. I mean, Mike raises some really good points. You do too, Ben, with regard to kind of Airlines at a time when they need to raise revenue and pay off debt are essentially turning away revenue this summer because they don't have the pilots. So there are no easy choices here, and it's going to require some tough decisions that are going to that's going to impact a number of people in a number of ways. But Mike raises a good point that should be factored into to all this. Well, another day, another dollar, and another show. So as we shut down, let me offer my shout out. To Christopher Brown, many in D.C. know him for his years working for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, including stints as airport manager for both Reagan National and Dulles. He's been at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum since 2007, and last week was named the director of the museum, always a popular tourist destination. So congrats to Mr. Brown. Congratulations. He'd be a great guest on the show, too, Chris. He would. My shout out goes to Diana Giraldo, who's a flight attendant on Frontier Airlines, who delivered a baby in flight from Denver to Orlando with a passenger mom who went into labor. And by all reports, the flight attendant was super calm and sort of made the whole thing work. And flight attendants are asked to do so many things that delivering a baby on board has to be above and beyond duty. So congratulations, Diana. And the best part of this story, I think, is that the mom gave the the baby the middle name of Sky. So that <laughs> so that, that that baby will remember the way they were born their whole life. So do you think they got charged an excess baggage fee at the end of the flight by Frontier? <laughs> what I think that's really funny. What I think Frontier should do is immediately enroll that baby into their frequent flyer program. Yeah, I think their first points. I think there was wasn't there a case a couple years ago where they gave that maybe it was Frontier they gave the baby free flights for life or something. So yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> anyway, congratulations to Diana. So with that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again next week. And thanks again to Sean Donahue for a great talk, too. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.